Hey, creep. I want to tell you a tale, if you're ready to hear it. It may not be pleasant. It may not end the way you want it to. But this story is gripping, and as fascinating as it is shockingly horrifying. Are you ready? My name's Cole, and you're listening to Tales. Welcome back, creeps, to our fourth installment to the Johnny Gosh story. If you haven't already listened to part one, two, and three, please go back now and listen before proceeding. All four episodes should be considered the same overall episode. So if you're listening to this, this being part four, you will find yourself confused in the middle of a complex story and with your head spinning. So I strongly suggest going back and catching up. It's been a long road, but today we finally reached the conclusion, or rather, the closest thing we can call a conclusion in the mysterious disappearance of Johnny Gosh. So many twists and turns had already happened in the case of young Johnny, and every time it seemed all hope was lost. That's exactly what was found, hope, but no concrete answers. There was the dollar bill with an alleged note from Johnny Gosh. There was the sighting of the boy as he ran from his captors. There was also the caller requesting $10,000 and Noreen's missed opportunity. And that's not to mention the shady character known as Sam Soda. The list goes on. And frankly, it almost sounds like a wild fictional concoction, but let's remember. As wild as this tale is, this is a true story. And it happened to real people. So please maintain your empathy. By the time September 1990 had rolled around, the Johnny Gosh case had more or less gone cold. There were no more cryptic notes, no more apparent sightings, and to put it bluntly, there was nothing keeping the public's interest piqued about the whereabouts of Johnny. The scenario was already an unfortunate bit of business, one that I'm sure some in the West Des Moines community, including police with all their dazzling failures, would love to forget. But there was still Johnny Gosh Sr. and Noreen, Johnny's parents, still bravely and persistently leading the charge. I can only imagine the amount of pain a fight like that would cause, but despite that pain, the two of them were undeterred. I assume they had their moments of doubt and overwhelming guilt, as I would think any one of us would have, but if anything can be attested to in this story, it's the love Noreen and John had for their son and just how far they were willing to go to get answers. Just as all hope seemed lost, that Johnny would become another statistic, that his disappearance would remain an urban legend to be spoken about in hushed tones for years to come, that's exactly when the fire was set ablaze, and the wheels started to turn once more. Noreen and John Sr. had theorized and largely, and emphatically, believed that Johnny's disappearance was tied to a pedophile sex ring. But that's all it really was. A theory. A conspiracy. That is until a lawyer and former state senator, John DeCamp, brought new information to light. John DeCamp, after his time in the Senate, worked as a lawyer, returning to the profession that first pushed him into politics and Mr. DeCamp was a lawyer for a man known as Paul Bonacci. Now, I've seen some of you creeps, 
preemptively ruining the end of this tale in the comments on YouTube or through our Facebook group. So let me just say this before continuing. I do not believe in the debunked Pizzagate theory, nor do I put any stock in KAnon theories whatsoever. It's a bunch of nonsense. So please let's leave any mention of all of that off the table as it does a disservice to this true story. It does a disservice to Johnny Gosh as well as his family and I find it mildly inappropriate given the context that these are real people. Now, John DeCamp's client, Paul Bonacci, was an alleged victim of a child sex ring linked to the Franklin Federal Credit Union in Omaha. Two years previous, in 1988, the credit union had fallen apart after it was brought to the attention of authorities that its director, Lawrence E. King Jr., who happened to be a rising force in the Republican Party, had embezzled nearly $40 million from the credit union. Surprise, surprise. But there appeared to be more to the case, and many involved as well as following the scandal believed that to be the case as well. Republicans stealing money and being corrupt has hardly been a leading story in the news over the last 40 years, let's be honest. So what made this story so volatile? Well, there were also rumors that some of the most prominent figures, both Republican and not Republican, had attended these perverted parties in which teenage prostitutes were offered up much like you would offer up hors d'oeuvres at a regular party to the attendees. And this accusation and rumor was being supported by a handful of young people, both men and women, who accused Lawrence King of organizing for them to be auctioned off to the highest bidder for sex. This wasn't only occurring at local parties, but apparently Lawrence King was flying them coast to coast for parties in other states as well, all the while giving them drugs and booze to make them more agreeable about the arrangement. I must say, though, Investigators apparently found no evidence that Lawrence King had been involved in any such arrangement, and he was never criminally charged. The statements of those young men and women had been tossed aside as unreliable testimony, but there were some lawmakers that claimed that those allegations did indeed come from reliable sources, and that it did deserve due attention, which it was sadly not getting. Now, examining this case years later, let's not forget that the idea of Jeffrey Epstein's pedophile island even 10 years ago would have sounded ridiculous to all of us. And given the way he died and how quiet the case has been since Ghislaine Maxwell has been taken into custody, it isn't beyond reasonable to think that perhaps there was a willful neglect to investigate further. One lawmaker who was vocal about the credibility of these sources was the then-Nebraska Senator Lauren Schmidt, who stated, I don't know if the witnesses are telling the whole truth or part of the truth, but they appear credible to me. I'd rather cut my arm off than find that these allegations are all true, not because of the alleged perpetrators, but because, if true, there has been a series of heinous crimes against children here for a very long time. Senator Schmidt went so far as to accuse the Omaha police, the FBI, and state attorney in being lax and negligent in their pursuit of the truth in this matter. And that's where the conspiracy lies. Who holds those in power accountable when those in power are the same people who are being accused? As it appeared, the young men and women were accusing members in the upper echelons of government, which didn't exclude the FBI. Who was investigating the case. 
In June 1988, the Nebraska Foster Care Review Board, which monitored the placement of thousands of children in Nebraska, received a report from a social worker who had been employed at a mental hospital in Omaha. The report included allegations of sexual child abuse. That same board then approached the Omaha police as well as the state attorney general to request that they investigate into the matter, hoping they would do whatever they could to uncover the truth or at least a nugget of the truth in the matter regarding the child exploitation and prostitution, as well as the inappropriate activities of Lawrence King. Please be advised that while my descriptions are brief here, for once I will put a trigger warning. As brief as they are, if any description of sexual abuse is distressing to you, please skip ahead roughly 30 to 45 seconds. The information in the report had come from a teenage girl who reported that she'd been forced to sit naked at parties. Then men would come and have sexual contact with her. And while she said penetration was not permitted, everything else was. Another alleged child prostitute came forward saying she witnessed a murder as well at one of these parties. Now, another one of these witnesses passed four polygraph tests, yet investigators refused to take any action, and were called out as such by Dennis Carlson, who currently acts as an official with the Nebraska State Bar Association. But, of course, investigators denied this, saying they spent hundreds of hours investigating the claim, but found zero evidence. Now, their claim is despite there being absolutely no evidence that they did indeed do their due diligence. Now, with those witnesses aside, there was another one who came forward, describing decadent parties, and was even able to name 24 people who'd attended and also abused them. All of those people named denied any involvement. But before this starts sounding far-fetched, let me bring to your attention a former reporter named Peter Citron, who was accused but denied the claim, and was not fully investigated. Peter Citron, on a completely unrelated incident, was arrested for the sexual assault of two children. So these claims, whether or not authorities wanted to admit it, were without merit. According to multiple witnesses and victims, Lawrence King sourced a lot of the teens he prostituted from a place called Boys Town, a famed Catholic home for troubled youth. But when it came down to a grand jury's decision whether or not they should move forward with the allegations against Boys Town, it was decided that the allegations were all lies, concocted by a bitter and disgruntled former employee of the youth home. Senator Schmidt was uneasy with the final word on the case and called the report put together by the grand jury a, and I quote, strange document. Probably most interesting in this whole debacle is that two of the victims doing the accusing went so far as to provide taped interviews. Those two individuals being Alicia Owen and none other than Paul Bonacci. Those two alleged victims were indicted on state perjury charges. Alicia was convicted and sentenced to 9 to 15 years in prison, but prosecutors for the state dropped the charge against Bonacci because he was already serving time in prison for a child sex abuse conviction. Now, Paul Bonacci is not what we would call a good person. But before we write off any worth he might have, it's worth noting that Paul did file a civil lawsuit against Lawrence King, who failed to respond. 
So the judge in charge of the lawsuit awarded Paul Bonacci $1 million, stating that it was a fair amount for the mental and physical injuries endured at the hands of Lawrence King. This statement suggested at the very least that the judge believed some or most of Paul Bonacci's claims that Lawrence King had forced him into child pornography and prostitution. This doesn't excuse anything Paul Bonacci might have done, but a little bit of empathy is never wasted. Now, if you're like me who's conflicted and feel a little weird about a pedophile receiving $1 million, whether or not he was a victim previous himself and whether or not that fed into what he became later in life, well, he never received any of it. Not a single cent. It was never enforced. Now, with that information out of the way, let's get back to Johnny Gosh. John DeCamp, the lawyer of Paul Bonacci, approached Noreen and John Sr., Johnny Gosh's parents, after reading a transcript of Johnny Bonacci's interview with a psychiatrist that referred to an incident with a paperboy in Iowa. The details were eerily similar, so John DeCamp decided to dig further into the Johnny Gosh claim to confirm what Paul Bonacci said in his interview. And lo and behold, the date given by Paul matched the date of the abduction of Johnny Gosh. So in 1990, John DeCamp called the Gosh family home, claiming that Paul Bonacci had confessed to helping in Johnny Gosh's abduction. After all John Gosh Sr. had seen his wife go through, he didn't bring the information directly to her, and instead took a trip to the prison where Paul Bonacci was serving time to listen to what he had to say. So when John Gosh Sr. arrived, signed into the visitor log, and walked through to the interview room, when John Gosh Sr. sat down, and asked Paul Bonacci if he knew who he was speaking to. Paul replied, You look like... It can't be. The eyes. You look like Johnny Gosh. Needless to say, but this statement along with others made by Paul Bonacci was enough to convince John Sr. that Paul was telling the truth. But after everything that had happened, he was still reluctant to buy into the story. So, John Sr. hired Roy Stevens, a private investigator from Omaha, and asked him to explore the case further on his behalf. Roy Stevens, over a period of time, conducted hundreds of hours of interviews, uncovering the following supposed facts. Paul Bonacci claimed there was a man named Emilio, who abducted children and sold them, thereby making his living. Emilio preferred to kidnap kids who were close with their families because it caused more pain and he liked to hurt people. Emilio took Paul Bonacci to Des Moines with him to help in his abduction of Johnny. Emilio was the driver of the blue Ford Fairmont, while Paul Bonacci was in the backseat with the job of holding Johnny down after he was tossed in the vehicle. The night before Johnny's abduction, Emilio and Paul spent a night in a hotel in Des Moines. Two people were implicated by Paul Bonacci in the abduction, including a man in Des Moines. And then lastly, Paul Bonacci was the first person to molest Johnny Gosh on camera, which he did so only because he was apparently forced. It wasn't until March 1991 that Noreen Gosh was made aware of all of this, after Roy Stevens contacted her and the family before traveling to Des Moines to show her the taped interviews. Noreen was taken completely by surprise when she saw her husband on the tapes, all of this business with Paul Bonacci seemed truthful, but the Goshes had been hopeful so many times before. 
In an attempt to discern whether they were being shown lies or truth, John Sr. and Noreen gave Roy Stevens a photo of a supposed contact in Des Moines, who the Goshes had already suspected was involved in the kidnapping. Roy Stevens took the photo back to Paul Bonacci and showed him the photo in a lineup of other photos to diffuse which one might be the so-called right answer and to validate his claims. From out of a dozen other photos, Paul Bonacci picked out the photo provided by the Goshes immediately and told Roy Stevens he had been the local contact who'd come to the hotel the night before with a photo of Johnny to show Emilio. Better yet, Paul Bonacci gave a name. The man in the photo was Sam Soda. So that brings us to what actually happened to Johnny Gosh, four episodes and over an hour later. It was October 1991 when Paul Bonacci finally told the Goshes what happened to their own son. The Goshes knew, as we know now looking back, that there is no way to tell if this is the absolute truth. But Paul Bonacci had nothing to gain by sharing anything with the family. Once again, I cannot say this is absolute truth, but I will recount it either way, as it's the closest thing to the truth we may ever get. A day before Johnny was taken, Emilio had taken Paul from Omaha to a hotel in Des Moines. At the hotel, Paul and Emilio met with Sam Soda and a man named Tony. Sam Soda showed Emilio a collection of photos of local paperboys that he'd taken and collected, and how much money he'd be able to make for abducting them, individually pricing them. Emilio was immediately interested in Johnny, so he put the photo to the side. On September 5th, 1982, in the weird and unsettling early morning light, Paul Bonacci, Sam Soda, Emilio, and Tony went out to kidnap Johnny Gosh. Paul in the back seat of the blue Ford Fairmont, driven by the character known as Emilio. It didn't take them long. They knew his route. It was the same every time he delivered the paper, so they hadn't needed to go far to find him. After spotting Johnny, they stopped and threw him in the backseat of the car where Paul Bonacci was instructed to forcibly hold Johnny down and chloroform him. Then Emilio and Paul transferred Johnny from their vehicle to the one driven by Johnny and Sam Soda. The men and Johnny stopped for a drink in Council Bluffs, Iowa, and then Johnny was taken to a farmhouse out near Sioux City. Johnny, rightfully terrified and traumatized, was held in a windowless room for what Paul Bonacci said was at the very least a week, before being transferred to Colorado to be held captive indefinitely. And from there, Paul Bonacci did not see Johnny until 1986. But creeps, how do we know these claims are true, or at least partly true? Well, that's because Paul Bonacci knew facts held back by police, as well as facts I haven't covered with you yet. Paul Bonacci wasn't just able to identify what Johnny looked like, but also a number of unique scars and marks. Paul knew that Johnny stuttered when he was nervous. He knew that Noreen was a yoga instructor, and Johnny accompanied her to work regularly. Noreen and John Gosh thought only one car had been involved in the kidnapping. But information in the findings of investigators indicated that multiple vehicles were involved, including a station wagon which had been seen idling on the side of the road. The Iowa DMV was able to confirm that Sam Soda owned an identical station wagon. A neighbor of the Gosh family told Noreen and John that a suspect had snapped a photo of Johnny. This was never public information, but Paul had known that a third party had photographed Johnny 
and the description he provided of the photo given to Emilio matched the description of the neighborhood behind Johnny in the photo. Paul Bonacci had stated that he was being held captive in Colorado, and this seemed to be the fact that raised a red flag for everyone involved. But that was until family friends took a trip to Denver, where they saw the words Johnny Gosh was here scribbled on a bathroom wall. When shown a photo of the establishment, Paul Bonacci was able to accurately describe the inside of the building. And Paul also knew that the words had been scribbled in red nail polish, because, he said, Johnny and another boy had painted their nails and had written on the bathroom wall with the nail polish. And then, lastly, Paul had a stash of letters he said had been sent to him by former members of the Franklin Credit Union Ring of Pedophiles. In multiple letters, and in multiple unique handwritings, were multiple mentions of J.G., that J.G. being Johnny Gosh. Now, it's been a long road, but we finally reached the tragic and sadly unfulfilling end to what is a stranger-than-fiction case. This case is frustrating and underwhelming in its conclusion, but it is so important to the conversation surrounding the idea that you never truly know who people are, and that what you think of the world is largely colored by your personal experience. Whether that world is vibrant and beautiful, or dreary and hateful, reality is relative, but facts are facts. Now, there is more circumstantial information regarding who Emilio was, but it starts to delve into some weird areas that include Satanism, and given the volatility of the world right now and misinformation running rampant, the last thing we need to do is give in to a second or third wave of satanic panic, which always seems to inconspicuously lurk at the edge of pop culture. For now, I'll leave it there. Thanks for joining me in this four-part episode in celebration of our one-year anniversary. I am so happy and filled with so much love by you creeps. I can't believe how many of you have followed along with this case for four weeks now, given that our episodes are usually much shorter and digestible. Thank you. Next week, we will return to those short and digestible episodes. If you want more of these episodes, you can join our Facebook group, which will be detailed in a minute, or you can leave us a review and tell us so. But for now, I think it's time to sign off. Stay safe, creeps. So, creeps, that brings us to the end of our tale. If you enjoyed this episode and want more, please consider becoming a Patreon member by visiting patreon.com slash talesbycole, where we release a Patreon-exclusive podcast weekly for Patreon members generous enough to donate $5 or more. If you have some time on your hands, please consider leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. They are so incredibly important in getting these stories out there. And even more importantly, every five-star review gets me one step closer to moving out of my mother's basement. You can also join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching Tales by Cole. This episode was written and narrated by me, Cole Weavers, and sound production and editing by Matt Black. Remember, creeps. Take care of one another, stay safe, and don't forget to lock the doors. <laughs>